Our reading this morning is taken from Luke's Gospel and chapter 17 and the first 21 verses. Luke's Gospel beginning chapter 17 at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, Put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So also when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with all things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Who wears the penny in your home? I was brooding over what to say this morning, how to splice what we read in Luke 17 with Mothering Sunday, when I stumbled across the wording used by the NRSV to translate Luke 17.8, where the boss says to the servant who's been working hard in the fields all day, put your apron on and serve me while I eat and drink. Maybe stop and think about gender roles. Who wears the apron? When I was growing up, the only person I ever saw wearing an apron was my mother. There's a little ditty that goes, the very best device kept from those days of yore, a tool so very useful for every kitchen chore, is not the modern kitchen, utensils by the score, but the hearty, steadfast apron that every grandma wore. Times change. These days, if you Google images of apron online, you find the first images that come to light are those of men sporting the very best 
aprons. Clearly, there's been a move over the past few decades to turn the humble apron into a unisex garment, one which a new man can wear with pride and gain great respect by doing so. Yet studies still suggest that on average, women do 60% more unpaid work around the house than men do. Writing in The Guardian, Oliver Berkman indicates that the housework gap stopped narrowing in the 1980s. Men, it seems, conceded that they should be doing more than before, but then, having half-heartedly vacuumed the living room and passed a dampened cloth over the dining room table, concluded it was time for a nicer sit-down. And it's not just that men aren't so bothered about a tidy home. There does seem to be some kind of problematic attitude lying at the back of this. In heterosexual households where the woman is the main breadwinner, the more she earns, the less her partner tends to contribute to the housework. Meanwhile, everywhere, men get special credit for the chores they do because their contribution gets assessed at the going rate, according to the sociologist Arley Hochschild. If a man does a bit more than the notional average man in his community, he is viewed as being exceptionally helpful. Anything but a worthless slave, then. But suppose we change the picture, but keep the same label. Our perception changes a bit. You don't kind of giggle and think that's funny if you look at the woman doing four things at once and the, the name a worthless slave attached to that. that. That actually is a little bit more uncomfortable and disconcerting. The dictionary definition of a housewife is a married woman whose main occupation is caring for her family, managing household affairs and doing housework. I suspect that women over the last few decades have shattered that stereotype. They have demonstrated in the marketplace that they are every bit as capable as the next man of having a great career. But unless you're like Helena Morrissey, who's found a husband who will stay at home to look after their nine children while she manages £50 billion worth of investments for the legal and general, there is a real danger that in addition to your career, you can still feel as if when you get home, you just swap one job for another, namely that of caring for a family, managing household affairs, and doing housework. And it's all too easy for ladies especially to feel a bit like the servant in Jesus' parable, who comes in from working in the fields all day, then puts on the apron, prepares supper, and serves everyone else. I am very aware that I'm skating on very thin ice now, and I'm in danger of being criticised for perpetuating harmful and outdated gender stereotypes. But I want to make it clear I have no desire to do that. But what I do want to draw attention to is the way in which even in an age of sexual equality, where it doesn't matter who wears the trousers or the pinny, there is a latent danger of differing expectations. You see the picture of the man drying up and you know there's no way a man like that is a worthless slave. You see the picture of the woman in the kitchen, you think, actually, that's a little bit close to home for comfort because we don't value mothers enough for all that they do. So let me change the picture back again to one with which we're much more comfortable. But let's remember the danger, actually, that 364 days of the year, there is a risk of mothers being undervalued and exploited in a way that's not quite the same of men. That's why we have Mother's Day to remind us that actually we shouldn't do that. We should value and treasure our mothers. But let's make the point of doing it all year round. That phrase, a worthless slave, actually comes from Luke's parable in Luke 17, Jesus' parable in Luke 17, where he uses the image of the servant who works in the fields all day, then waits hand and foot on his master to make the point that the 
what we do for God doesn't qualify us for any special recognition. We are simply doing what needs to be done. The commentator Francois Beauvon thinks that the parable is directed particularly at those who have positions of leadership within the church. Luke expects the leaders of the church to carry out their tasks with zeal and faithfulness without expecting to receive any special congratulations or reward in return. Perhaps I should have a picture of a minister up there with worthless slave next to it. God needs men and women, but considers those who believe themselves particularly indispensable to be useless for the task. But to say that we should see ourselves as useless slaves, worthless servants, seems to take away all incentive for doing anything for God at all. What's the point? The point is that we're doing what needs to be done. And Jesus, again, is using hyperbole to provocatively exaggerate things to make a point. Of course, God doesn't regard us as worthless servants. But that doesn't mean we should ever make the mistake of thinking that we are entitled to pat ourselves on the back. Suppose we've done a, God, a great favour by performing some act of service. Actually, when we serve God, when we serve each other, we're only doing what needs to be done because that's the way it's supposed to be. There is no great kudos in serving each other. And I suppose at home as well, unless you just abandon the idea of keeping a clean and tidy house and live in squalor, housework is one of those things that just needs to be done. And the harsh fact is you don't get a great deal of recognition for it because of the nature of the work. Back in 1949, Simone de Beauvoir drew attention to the drudgery of housework. Few tasks are more like the torture of Sisyphus than housework, with its endless repetitions. The clean becomes soiled. The soiled is made clean, over and over, day after day. The job satisfaction is zero, because as soon as you've got something clean, whoever else is living with you instantly makes it dirty again. Even if you are highly skilled and efficient, there is a tendency to regard housework as menial, and that makes it a thankless task. But actually, having people appreciate and value what you do makes a world of difference, whether you're a mother or not. That word of thanks, of recognition, of appreciation goes a long way. And I can't help wondering whether Luke was smiling to himself as he put chapter 17 together, because straight after Jesus talks about the way in which we don't deserve special thanks or recognition for what we do in God's service, he tells the story of, of Jesus healing the ten lepers. And Jesus being a bit surprised and quite hurt when only one of them comes back to say thank you. The other nine just run off and do as he's told them without looking back at all. And you can, he says, Jesus says, what happened to the other nine? Weren't ten made clean? And you can imagine Luke writing these words thinking, well, Jesus, now you know how it feels, don't you? Just doing something because it's supposed to be done and not getting thanked for it. Worthless slaves indeed. What were you thinking of? But then the story of the ten lepers is followed by that conversation between Jesus and the disciples and the Pharisees about when the kingdom of God is going to come. And he says, it's no good looking for signs of the coming kingdom because the kingdom of God is... Well, precisely what he meant is the subject of some debate. The NRSV has him say, the kingdom of God is among you. It's in your midst. It's here already, affecting who we are and how we live. And we catch glimpses of God's kingdom when people are healed, when people are cleansed, when people are set free, when people are forgiven when people are served, when people are valued, when people are loved. 
When we treat each other the way God wants us to treat each other, we live as citizens of God's kingdom. That goes for us in church, at home, in the workplace. The kingdom of God is among you, and it's there when we treat each other as God would have us treat each other. But another translation is the kingdom of God is within you, here inside your heart. This is where God reigns. This is where his kingdom is to be found in my life. Every day we're called to be people who pray, Lord, today reign in my heart and in my mind. Be Lord of my life. Help me today to live under your guidance and direction and to serve you as my God and King. I give today to you and I offer it to you as an act of service and worship. Reign in me. Rule over me. And whatever chaos is going on around me, in my heart, may your kingdom be there, governing my response, dictating who I am and how I live and what I do. Reign in me, sovereign Lord. Reign in me. Another possible translation is the kingdom of God is in your possession. There's a papyrus dating back to the time when Luke wrote his gospel, which uses the same construction that Luke uses to talk about a woman who had a reserve supply of wine available to her at her disposal in her possession. To say that wine was within her would have been quite wrong. That would have implied that she'd drunk it all. But no, it was in a cellar. And if she needed it, it was there. She could draw upon the resources. It was something that she could use. And there's that sense in which the kingdom of God is available to us. Its power is there for us. We all have, always have the option of, of reaching out to God and asking him to take charge of our situation. Lord, may your kingdom come and the availability of God's kingdom and his readiness to rule in situations where we place them in his hands. We are never left without resources, but his kingdom, his sovereignty is always there for us when we need it. And then Francois Beauvoir again suggests this translation, the kingdom of God is in the space that belongs to you. And I quite like that as well. Your life, in all its different facets, all your different roles, all your different relationships, the space that you occupy in society, in the world, in church, at home, at work, that's where the kingdom of God is. And where you go, you take the kingdom of God with you. And through you, the kingdom of God comes close to everyone you meet. It's the driving force for what you do and how you do it. What did Jesus mean precisely? Nobody knows. Which meaning is right for you this morning? Where and how do you need to find God's kingdom right here, right now? Whether it's as a stressed out mother, whether it's as people juggling six different roles at once, whether it's because the pressure is particularly on you in family or at home or at work, or just matters of health and concern. Whoever you are, wherever you are, however you need God's kingdom. Let me invite you just to pray quietly that phrase from the prayer that Jesus taught us. Father, thy kingdom 